0: Look at how many of you risked almost certain death to come here in in the white death. Title of this message is "What You See Is What You Get." People react to the job of teacher shepherd differently. My friend in Jerusalem told me once, He's one of my best friends we met in 1986, first trip over there, he told me, I could never do your job. I could never deal with people and problems all the time. His view of being a teacher and a shepherd is rather narrow. If dealing with problems was all I had to do, I would go quite mad quite quickly. Another one of my friends has a different perspective. He told me it must be wonderful to have a job where all you do is search the scriptures all day long and search for God. Indeed that would be wonderful. Of course, that view is also just a tad, just a bit unrealistic. In both the Tanakh and the New Covenant, God provides us with an example of a teacher-slash-shepherd. Moshe was the first called to this role in Israel, and it was a role that the Mashiach would fulfill when he came, Moses said, The Lord will raise up another prophet like unto me, and you must hear him. He was speaking of the coming of Moshiach. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses our teacher, spent a great deal of time in intimate contact with God, learning what he should then teach the people of Israel. As the shepherd of God's flock, he also spent much time judging, solving problems, keeping the flock together, because Israel, the people of Israel were arguing with one another. They had disputes. And somebody had to step in and solve those. In fact, very often Moshe, is at odds with the people that he is called to shepherd. They seek to rebel, they seek to challenge him, almost at every turn. Yeshua's life saw him also in intimate contact with his father. Oftentimes he leaves the other disciples and goes off to be alone on a mountaintop. Sometimes he brings a few disciples with him. Sometimes he goes off entirely alone and then walks on water to find the guys who are out on the boat. Yet often he is also at odds with those he came to teach and to serve. He was often frustrated during his ministry. And it was not only with those who did not believe he was the Son of God. John chapter 14 verses 8 through 9. How long have I been with you, and yet you still do not know me, Philip? All this time? Nothing? Philip's view of Yeshua was rather narrow. He saw only the man before him. Yeshua desired to open his eyes, that he might see more. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What you see is what you get. The view of Yeshua has varied greatly over the years. Some see see him as a fraud. A false messiah who led Israel astray to believe in other gods other than Elohim, Adonai Elohim. Some see him as divine. Others only as a good man who had some really good ideas on how to live, an excellent philosophy on life. How you see him does not affect who he is. That is eternal, and he doesn't change. But it does affect your reaction to his presence. If he be God incarnate, then his words are commandments which must be followed. If but a man, his words become nothing more than suggestions. If you like what he says, do it. If you don't like, don't do it, it's up to you. There are, are two ways to accumulate knowledge, reason where you deduce things or induce things, which is less reliable. But you deduce truth from facts and experience vis-a-vis observation. Today, most cultures use both. However, in more ancient times, especially in the first century, these two paradigms were generally confined to do two different cultures, if you will, referred to as the Eastern and the Western mindset. Paul was aware of the obvious distinctions in the way people thought. As a Greek Jew, he was familiar with both the culture of Greece and the deductive reasoning of that culture, as well as Israel. The former is syllogistic, the latter experiential. A syllogism is a form of reasoning in which two general statements lead to a more specific conclusion. The classic example provided in in classes on logic It's, uh, I would assume it's in every class. It was in every class that I had. Fact A, cotton grows in a warm climate. Fact B, England has a cold climate. Question, does cotton grow in England? Now, to the Western mind, the answer is obvious. No. Fact A plus fact B equals conclusion C. It's obvious. The Eastern mind thinks differently, and the likely answer you'll get is, I don't know. I've never been in England. They're not trying to be facetious or silly. They can't be sure. Both viewpoints have merits as well as deficiencies. And in fact, both are necessary to find truth. A classic example from science. A bumblebee has a certain mass on its body, a certain size of wing, and they flap them at a certain speed. And when you run all the numbers, the bumblebee can't fly. The bumblebee's wings are not large enough, they don't flap fast enough, to overcome the mass of their body and the gravity. Well, of course, the the bumblebee doesn't know anything about physics and so it just flies. So you have an observation that contradicts logic, mathematics, deductive reasoning. It goes in the other direction also. Magicians use this all the time. They do things that appear magical. Well, they're not magical. They're sleight of hand. They, they, they. There's a reasonable explanation. You just have to find it. <coughs> In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 through 25, Paul reveals the deficits of both the Eastern and the, and the Western mindset the way of accumulating truth. The Jews seek a sign and the Greeks, or the world, seek after wisdom. But we preach Messiah crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God, and the wisdom, the reasoning of God. Now, God is constantly telling us that his ways are not our ways, that they're much higher. And there's a reason for that. It's relatively simple. God knows everything. We do not. And so the conclusions that we come to are based on a partial knowledge. The one who knows everything factors in everything into his thinking, and he comes to a conclusion that is always right. There is great insight into Paul's words. Signs and wonders alone cannot determine whether a person is speaking God's truth. The test for a prophet was he gives a prophecy that was close to coming to fulfillment. And if it comes to fulfillment, he's a true prophet. But there's a caveat in Torah. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet arises and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes true, if he then says, let us go after other gods, you shall not listen to him. So the test for a true prophet wasn't signs and wonders alone. It was what that prophet spoke. Did it agree with or disagree with the word of God. That was the bottom line because God is not going to contradict himself. And so this prophet, regardless of any sign and wonder, had to speak truth that agreed with the scriptures. Over the last half century I have heard the words of Deuteronomy applied to Yeshua. I have spoken to many of my people, many of them being Orthodox And some of those do not deny the miracles that Yeshua did. They have no trouble accepting the fact that he healed people who were born blind. People who were lame. They have no trouble believing that he raised people from the dead, that he cleansed lepers. But they don't accept him because they believe... Although the signs and wonders he did came true, he was leading the people astray to follow a different God. They rejected him. To the Greek, or the reasonable mind, the entire concept of a messiah is ludicrous. In their logic and reasoning, one man dying for the sins of the world is preposterous. Utter foolishness. This is silly. A little bedtime story you tell your children so that they might feel better. Paul declares Yeshua is both the fullness of God's power by his miraculous displays as well the fullness of God's reason and logic. Come, let us reason together. God proposes certain things. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He is saying that each one of those paradigms is insufficient to find truth. Either can lead you astray. First, man's wisdom, again, is based on knowledge, his knowledge which is incomplete. In fact, it's, it's rather limited. Secondly, God is not the only one who can produce miracles, signs, and wonders. The beast of revelation will perform many marvels before the people, even being raised from the dead, surviving a mortal wound. Now, I've heard the word mortal mitigated there. Well, it wasn't a deadly wound. Well, that's what mortal wound means. It means deadly wound. He was dead. This is not Max the miracle worker here. He wasn't mostly dead. He's dead and he rises up which causes many to conclude Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? You can't even kill him. He gets up. Signs and wonders are not the proof text on whether somebody is speaking God's truth. The words that he speaks must be judged according to the word of God. In a previous message I quoted from the writings of my people in the Talmud in a tractate called Berachot, and it says this and it's profoundly accurate everything is in the hands of God except the fear of God. There are many, one of the most profound verses in scripture is found in Revelation and they cursed the God who sent the plagues against them. That is remarkable. They know there's a God, they know he's the one who sent the plagues, but didn't repent and actually curse God who sent the plagues. It's, it's a phenomenal statement, and it's accurate. The word fear in Hebrew is ira. I discussed this in greater depth here couple of weeks ago. The word Yira also can mean to see. In other words, God controls everything except our reaction to his presence. One of the aspects of being created in the image and the likeness of God is that man has free will. I can choose which path I desire to walk down. God will try to influence my decisions, just like his enemy will try to influence those decisions. But in the final analysis, it's my cho- choice on which one I'm going to listen to. The new covenant is overflowing with Yeshua revealing the power and the wisdom of God. God's way of thinking, God's way of viewing things. In Luke chapter 14, Yeshua is invited to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And he's invited on a Shabbat. And the scriptures say, and they watch him closely. Now there's a little side note here to give you an idea of what's going on here. The Sanhedrin was the chief court of Israel. The high priest was presided over that court. And their job was not only to judge cases between people. In fact, that was a lesser job. Primarily, they were there to judge prophets, and in the most extreme case, those claims of people who said they were the the Messiah. Yeshua was not the only one who claimed to be Mashiach in the first century. Um, There were lots of prophets. There were lots of Mashiachs in the first century, it sort, of, sort of puts my mind to boulder on a Sunday afternoon, it's, it's quite amazing. And there was a procedure by which they followed testing the spirits to see if the, they are from God. First they sent out a delegation to observe, not to question, simply to observe and remain silent. What does this man do? Did he perform certain miracles? What is he teaching? Listen and absorb everything about this man's presence. If his actions and his teachings warrant a further investigation, another delegation of even more elder and senior members of the Sanhedrin would go and then begin to query him, to try to trick him into saying something that was against what the scriptures said. And this was the procedure that was involved in anyone who proclaimed to be Mashiach. Luke chapter 14, verses 2 through 6. There was a man suffering from now, There's a number of ways that that is interpreted. If is correct, it is uh, an edema, a swelling of the legs. And Yeshua spoke to the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Shabbat or not? But they kept silent. This was the first investigation. When they kept silent, he took hold of the man and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you shall have a son or an ox that falls into the well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day." And they had no answer. They remained silent. What Yeshua is doing here is expanding a very ancient Jewish concept that most societies already accept. It's called Pekoach Nefesh. The saving of a soul. The nefesh is the soul of the life of the flesh. And what this concept says, Pukot Nefesh, is that the commandments of God can be broken, negated, in order to save the life of a human being. Yeshua also alludes to this, you know, I I desire compassion and mercy more than sacrifice. That Showing another person mercy and saving their life is more important than not doing work on the Shabbat. We have it in our society. You're not allowed to run a red light. Unless of course there's somebody choking to death or bleeding to death in the seat next to you. Who would stop at the red light and wait while the man dies so that you don't get a ticket? You wouldn't get a ticket anyway. You're required to run the light to get him to the hospital to save his life. Any reasonable person would understand this. In this passage, Yeshua is expanding this to include not only life-threatening injuries, but any relief from suffering is lawful to do on the Shabbat. The Lord of the Sabbath declares that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And relieving a person's pain and suffering allows him to enter into rest more fully. You are helping him come to rest. The Torah was given as a blessing, not a burden. The scriptures call it a tree of life. If the Sabbath is something you see as a divine blessing and you look forward to you, it, w- to it, you, it will be a blessing for you. If it's something you see as this burdensome obligation, it'll be a curse. What you see is what you get. In Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33, it reveals a very ominous thought. Count the costs of following Yeshua. Most people don't do that. I didn't. When I accepted him, I didn't count the costs. I didn't even know what the costs were. Verse 33 tells us what the cost is, everything. No one can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions, everything. Now in a context, Yeshua is speaking about, there was a parable about a a powerful man who invites a whole bunch of guests to a great feast. And the guests he invites all have something else that they need to do, and their response to the invite is, please consider me excused. They're all compelled to do something other than attend this feast. The cost of following Yeshua is everything. Family, friends, loved ones, your own desires, all must take a back seat to following what the Lord has told you to do. That's easy to say, tad more difficult to do. Now, Yeshua is not saying here, as some have exegeted this this passage, that we need to give up everything that you have and just give everything away. That's not what he's saying. He's also not telling us to stop loving our mother and our father and our children and our wives. That is ludicrous. It is just silly. It's not what he says, but he's giving an order to our love. This is an effort to triage, if you will. We say it every week in the Via love the Lord your God first. Everybody else, everything else is second. You can't be a godly husband unless you're first a godly man. You have to be in intimate contact with God to be a godly anything. The love and call of God is greater than the call of anything else in this world, if that's the way you see it. This is a lesson that God has been trying to teach me over the last 52 years and at 74 I'm first beginning to get an inkling of what he's talking about to put your own desires aside there are many things that would draw me you know Colorado is an interesting place there's things that would repel me from this place There's a lot of things that would repel me from this place. And there's other things in other places that would attract me to go there. But the call of God has me here for whatever period of time I am here. If I leave without getting a release from God, I've done that before. It's very painful. The spanking goes on for for years. Nothing works out the way you thought. I've been tested in mild ways so far. However, I am certain that the test will get more severe as the time of the end draws nigh. That's simple. In the view of the world, of faith in, in Yeshua is the, the very pinnacle of madness. Yeshua told us that those who follow him will have trouble in this world. Ding, 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 little red flag. The apostles are an excellent example. They lived mostly impoverished of the things of the world. They suffered imprisonment. They were stoned and beaten. All were executed horribly. These are not the things that you want to put on a recruitment poster. You know? It's like the army. If you want to join, the, or the navy, you want to join the join the navy and see the world. They don't say join the navy and you may get blown up. They leave that part out, because nobody joins an organization where they get blown up. The strange part is, even with all these warnings, even with all these statements of what's going to happen the faith still grew and it grew exponentially what did they know what would be attractive in this offer when i was growing up there was a new newscaster by the name of david brinkley he was pretty famous He has one quote that has stayed with me. A successful man is one who can lay a firm foundation with the bricks that other people throw at him. I love that. Paul was a perfect example of that, almost literally. How many times was he stoned and yet those stones were used to strengthen the foundation that he stood on Paul learned the secret of happiness and he proclaims it in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice in the Lord you know it reminds me of a a joke actually and it, it reminded me last night and I put it in there and I was surprised at how many people hadn't heard this joke, because it's so stupid. It should have been around the world three times now. But it's, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, the old master lives in a cave at the top of this mountain. And a young man climbs the mountain, arduous journey. And he finally finds the cave. Master, what is the secret of happiness? The old master says, don't argue with fools. The young man says, I'm not sure that's true. And the old master says, yes, you are right. (laughs) I don't know who wrote that joke, but that man is hilarious. You Yeshua sure said it a little more succinctly, don't cast your pearls before swine, same concept. This is the secret, rejoice before the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. That is the secret of receiving the peace that passes any understanding. What that means is even situations that you find yourself in that don't appear to be peaceful, you can find a peace that passes your understanding even in the midst of a tumultuous situation. Last week I quoted from Philippians chapter 4 verses 8 through 9. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. The more you focus on the things of God, the more his peace, the more of his peace you will receive and have. And the more you focus on the things of the world, the less peace of God you will have. For the world is enmity with God. And if peace is what you are searching for, you're not going to find it in the world especially the world we live in right now. It is chaotic. Everything is random. There's no way to predict the things, who would have predicted the situation we're in right now 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's inconceivable. Paul learned and taught the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 12. He has learned a great deal as he has followed Yeshua. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. How does he live in that? Praise God always. Again, I say, praise the Lord. Are you dead broke? Are you having a lot of trouble? praise ye the Lord are you flowing in money praise ye the Lord he learned how to live in both of those conditions those who only see this world simply will not follow Yeshua he is the pinnacle of insanity if you judge him by the world's reasoning. He was a lunatic. If what you see is the son of God, he is the pinnacle of beauty. He is the light of the world. To save you, souls. What you see, what you get. When one hears the words of God walking on the wind of the day, his consciousness is expanded. He becomes aware of things around him that he was oblivious to previously. Each of man's souls, the nephesh, the life of the flesh, and the neshometh, that divine breath that was breathed into him, make a man aware of his surroundings. Makes him conscious. As a child, the nefesh, the life of the flesh, is unresponsive. It's unaware. It is possible to expand the nefesh and to make it sensitive even to the most minuscule bits of information around you. Primitive people have honed their nefesh for their very survival physically depends on them being aware of what's going on around them. Very similar to animals. They need to know where danger is, where the places they can rest are, where there's water, where there's food, Native American was able to look out over a field and tell you where the animals were, where the water holes were. They were extraordinarily sensitive to their, society, to their surroundings. The scouts for the cavalry learned much. The same process takes place in one who hears different words carried on a different wind. When God's holy wind awakens the divine breath that was breathed into us within a man, he sees with new eyes, and he hears with new ears, and everything changes. What is real expands. It's like Shasta in C.S. Lewis's uh, story, The Horse and His Boy. I mentioned this, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Shasta became aware. He couldn't see. It was pitch black, but he became aware that something was there. He hear it breathing. He could hear the wind. And eventually, that presence, although unseen, became overwhelming. It, 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 it. He was immersed in who was walking next to him, consumed all of his thoughts. When we hear or see the presence of God, the things of this world become less important. They become less valuable. They begin to take a back seat. The things I desire today are dramatically different than the things I desired 52 years ago. I almost never think about Lamborghinis anymore. (laughs) To whatever degree we are aware of and open to the presence of God, the more of God we're going to see. Yeshua said it this way in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I'll sup with him and him with me. Yira Hashem. The fear of the Lord will open your eyes. Yira Hashem. And you will begin to see God everywhere if he is what you seek after you will find it that wondrous vision will eventually consume your thoughts as the presence of God envelops you if you believe in God then he is the one who formed you he is the one who gives you purpose and he is the one who guides you on the path back to him if you believe that there is no God then this universe is simply one immense cosmic coincidence there is no ultimate right and wrong there is no reason there is no purpose behind anything anything at all it's all chaos it's all random a serendipitous haphazard Universe that has nothing of any meaning. We are free to choose. But once chosen, our view will determine the nature of the world that we live in. What you see is what you get. In my view, the world is a lot better place with God in it. In fact, I don't know how people who don't believe in God get through the day. I would be lost. No purpose. No reason behind anything. The chaos would envelop me. It would produce a madness. In my view, the world is a far better place with God in it. Father, in Yeshua's name, I thank you for the promises that you have made, that you would never leave nor forsake. That even in the pitch black, we can sense that you are there. We can you hear your breath, small, still voice sometimes, a gentle caress, or a strong rebuke? At the Noah Shema, the Lord is there. And it is the reason we take another step. Imbibe us with your holy wind. Revive in the Shoma. Strengthen us that we might be able to walk the paths that you have chosen for each of us to travel. In Yeshua's precious name, Amen.